A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 50. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 17. The Second Cataract, Part 2. At a fatal corner about six miles below Wadi Halfa we passed a melancholy flotilla of dismantled dahabiyas, the Fostet, the Zenobia, the Alas, the Mansura, all alike weather-bound and laid up helplessly against the wind. The Mansura, with Captain and Mrs. E. on board, had been three days doing these six miles, at which rate of progress they might reasonably hope to reach Cairo in about a year and a month. The palms of Wadi Halfa, blue with distance, came into sight at the next bend, and by noon the filet was once more moored alongside the bagstones under a shore crowded with cangias, covered with bales and packing-cases, and, like the shores of Mahada and Aswan, populous with temporary huts. For here it is that traders going by water embark and disembark on their way to and fro Dongola and the first cataract. There were three temples, or at all events three ancient Egyptian buildings, once upon a time on the western bank over against Wadi Halfa. Now there are a few broken pillars, a solitary fragment of brick pylon, some remains of a flight of stone steps leading down to the river, and a wall of enclosure overgrown with wild pumpkins. These ruins, together with a rambling native Khan and a noble old sycamore, form a picturesque group backed by amber sand cliffs, and mark the site of a lost city belonged to the early days of Ursertesen III. The second, or great cataract, begins a little way above Wadi Halfa, and extends over a distance of many miles. It consists, like the first cataract, of a succession of rocks and rapids, and is skirted for the first five miles or so by the sand-cliff ridge which, as I have said, forms a background to the ruins just opposite Wadi Halfa. This ridge terminates abruptly in the famous precipice known as the Rock of Abu Sir. Only adventurous travellers bound for Dongola or Khartoum go beyond this point, and they, for the most part, take the shorter route across the desert from Korosko. El and the rider would fain have hired camels and pushed on as far as Semna, which is a matter of only two days' journey from Wadi Halfa, and for people provided with sketching tents is one of the easiest of inland excursions. One may go to the rock of Abu Sir by land or by water. The happy couple and the rider took two native boatmen, burst in the intricacies of the cataract, and went in the felucca. El and the painter preferred donkeying. Given a good breeze from the right quarter, there is, as regards time, but little to choose between the two routes. No one, however, who has approached the rock of Abu Sir by water, and seen it rise like a cathedral front from the midst of that labyrinth of rocky islets, some like clusters of basaltic columns, some crowned with crumbling ruins, some bleak and bare, some green with wild pomegranate trees, can doubt which is the more picturesque. Landing among the tamarisks at the foot of the cliff, we come to the spreading skirts of a sand-drift steeper and more fatiguing to climb than the sand-drift at Abu Simbel. We do climb it, however, though somewhat sulkily, and finding the donkey-party perched upon the top, are comforted with draughts of ice-cold lemonade, brought in a kula from Wadi Halfa. The summit of the rock is a mere ridge, steep and overhanging towards east and south, and carved all over with autographs in stone. 
Some few of these are interesting, but for the most part they record only the visits of the illustrious obscure. We found Belzoni's name, but looked in vain for the signatures of Burkhart, Champollion, Lepsius, and Ampere. Owing to the nature of the ground and the singular clearness of the atmosphere, the view from this point seemed to me to be the most extensive I had ever looked upon. Yet the height of the rock of Abusir is comparatively insignificant. It would count but as a mole-hill if measured against some alpine summits of my acquaintance. I doubt whether it is as lofty as even the Great Pyramid. It is, however, a giddy place to look down from, and seems higher than it is. It is hard, now that we are actually here, to realize that this is the end of our journey. The cataract, an immense multitude of black and shining islets, among which the river, divided into hundreds of separate channels, spreads far and wide for a distance, it is said, of more than sixteen miles, foams at our feet. Foams and frets and falls, gushing smooth and strong where its course is free, murmuring hoarsely where it is interrupted, now hurrying, now loitering, here eddying in oily circles, there lying in still pools unbroken by a ripple, everywhere full of life, full of voices, everywhere shining to the sun. Northwards, where it winds away towards Abu Simbel, we see all the fantastic mountains of yesterday on the horizon. To the east, still bounded by outliers of the same disconnected chain, lies a rolling waste of dark and stony wilderness, trenched with innumerable valleys through which flow streams of sand. On the western side the continuity of the view is interrupted by the ridge which ends with Abu Sir. Southwards the Libyan desert reaches away in one vast undulating plain, tawny, arid, monotonous, all sun, all sand, lit here and there with arrowy flashes of the Nile. Farthest of all, pale but distinct, on the outermost rim of the world, rise two mountain summits, one long, one dome-like. Our Nubians tell us that these are the mountains of Dongola. Comparing our position with that of the third cataract, as it appears upon the map, we come to the conclusion that these ghost-like silhouettes are the summits of Mount Fogo and Mount Arambo, two apparently parallel mountains situate on opposite sides of the river about ten miles below Hanek and consequently about 145 miles as the bird flies from the spot on which we are standing. In all this extraordinary panorama, so wild, so weird, so desolate, there is nothing really beautiful except the color. But the color is transcendent. Never, even in Egypt, have I seen anything so tender, so transparent, so harmonious. I shut my eyes, and it all comes before me. I see the amber of the sands, the pink and pearly mountains, the cataract rocks, all black and purple and polished, the dull gray palms that cluster here and there upon the larger islands, the vivid verdure of the tamarisks and pomegranates, the Nile, a greenish-brown flecked with yeasty foam, over all the blue and burning sky, permeated with light and palpitating with sunshine. I made no sketch. I felt that it would be ludicrous to attempt it. And now I feel that any endeavor to put the scene into words is a mere presumptuous effort to describe the indescribable. Words are useful instruments, but, like the etching needle and the burin, they stop short at form. They cannot translate color. If a traveler pressed for time asked me whether he should or should not go as far as the second cataract, 
I think I should recommend him to turn back from Abu Simbel. The trip must cost four days, and if the wind should happen to be unfavorable either way, it may cost six or seven. The forty miles of river that have to be twice traversed are the dullest on the Nile. The cataract is but an enlarged and barren edition of the cataract between Aswan and Philae, and the great view, as I have said, has not that kind of beauty which attracts the general tourist. It has an interest, however, beyond and apart from that of beauty. It rouses one's imagination to a sense of the greatness of the Nile. We look across a world of desert, and see the river still coming from afar. We have reached a point at which all that is habitable and familiar comes abruptly to an end. Not a village, not a bean-field, not a shadoof, not a sakia is to be seen in the plain below. There is no sail on those dangerous waters. There is no moving creature on those pathless sands. But for the telegraphic wires stalking ghost-like across the desert, it would seem as if we had touched the limit of civilization, and were standing on the threshold of a land unexplored. Yet for all this we feel as if we were at only the beginning of the mighty river. We have journeyed well nigh a thousand miles against the stream, but what is that to the distance which still lies between us and the great lakes? And how far beyond the great lakes must we seek for the source that is even yet undiscovered? End of section 50